0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com.
1: Okay, so who's pro and who's against candy corn? I'm against. Against. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm pro, (laughs) Sorry. I am against candy corn because
2: of three things. I think it's kind of waxy. The second reason is the taste. I feel like it tastes like medicine. Also visually, um, the colors, they just don't make me want to eat it. I would argue that like that's the appeal is like it's a little gross, a little weird. It's, it's not something you like eat all the time, but you eat it when Halloween comes and it just totally heralds in the season. I don't like the taste either. I think it tastes like paste, but if at least it should look More like corn if we're gonna call it candy
1: corn. Like candy cigarettes look just like cigarettes. Like I think it should look more accurate. It's almost like I can like eat a candle, but I also really like Twizzlers, which is like, I feel like kind of a similar concept. Like, I don't know what they're supposed to be like representing, but it's kind of like candy for the sake of candy in a way. So I feel like I just like
3: appreciate how fake it is. You just heard a raucous debate from our interns about the merits of America's most divisive confection, candy corn. In a few moments, we'll hear more about how those pesky little nuggets became synonymous with Halloween. On today's episode of Meet and 3, we're taking a closer look at all things spooky. From bone-shaped breads to haunted taverns, we'll offer up a bunch of tasty treats, and maybe a few tricks too. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. First up, we're asking: How did candy corn come to be such a contentious part of Halloween? And how did candy come to be associated with Halloween at all? Michael Edwin has the history.
4: Halloween candy. While it's a joyous part of the fall season, it has always been somewhat of a mystery to me. Before I set out to uncover its past, I asked my friends for their take, and I got some pretty surprisingly mixed messages.
5: Candy really means unity and bringing our friends and family together. It's a holiday to not only get dressed up and have fun, but to be happy and eat sweets and eat things that we're not usually allowed to eat on a regular day.
0: I think the fact that it still happens, that people give out candy and kids go around either with or without their parents and take it from strangers, I think that is completely odd. Like, you go, it just, the whole idea of it is absolutely ridiculous.
4: Regardless of how you feel about Halloween candy, to understand why we eat it each year on October 31st, we have to take a look at the history of the holiday itself. The origins of Halloween date back 2,000 years ago to the ancient Celts festival of Semain when people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off ghosts. The Celts lived in what is now known as Ireland and they believed that on the night of the new year, which was November 1st, the boundaries between the world of the living and the dead became blurred. On the night of October 31st, they celebrated Simein when it was believed that the ghost of the dead returned to earth. The first celebrations included play parties, which were public events held to celebrate the harvest. Neighbors would share stories of the dead, tell each other fortunes and even dance and sing. They also participated in rarely odd activities such as bobbing for apples, a ritualistic activity that would apparently allow a woman to discover the identity of her future husband, but that's a story for another time. So, how did Halloween celebrations shift from apple bobbing to trick-or-treating, and when did candy enter the equation? Well, trick-or-treating was also a tradition celebrated by the Celtics, and it had some Christian influence as well. One such influence was the creation of All Souls Day. This was a celebration on November 2nd to honor the dead, Poor people would go door-to-door among the homes of wealthy families to beg for money. Members of the families would give out soul cakes, a small sweet cake spiced with cinnamon, and ask that the recipients pray for the souls of the family's dead relatives. This new tradition was called souling, and as the years went on, it became an activity not for adults but for children. Children who went out on all souls Day would go door-to-door asking for treats like money, food, drinks, and soul cakes were the original Halloween candy at the time. Fast forward to the 20th century, the tradition of Halloween along with trick-or-treating was carried on in the US by the Scottish and Irish immigrants, and traditions changed along with the times. The first occurrence of trick-or-treating in North America took place in 1920, which brought about the tradition of guising. Going from house to house and having small performances to obtain food and treats. It wasn't until the 1930s that trick-or-treating was popularized. Children were given everything from homemade cookies and pieces of cake to fruits, nuts, coins, and toys. Candy finally made its appearance as a trick-or-treat giveaway in the 1950s. This inspired the candy manufacturers to promote their products for Halloween. As trick-or-treating grew in popularity, Candy was increasingly affordable and convenient. And by the 1970s, wrapped factory-made candy was viewed as the only acceptable thing to hand out to little ghosts and goblins that showed up on people's doorsteps. Candy ultimately inspired a generational shift in trick-or-treating. It was passed down from one generation to another, traveled across the seas, and transformed in the United States. Eventually, the holiday's spirituality was overtaken by sugar. Whether you're going to be collecting candy or giving it away, hoarding Twixes or savoring sweet candy corns, give a little thought to the Celts this weekend.
3: Along with consuming massive amounts of sweets, one of the most beloved Halloween traditions is telling spooky stories. Yes, we're talking about ghosts. Recently, Intrepid ghost hunters Brianna Brady and Zoe Denkla visited the Ear Inn, one of the longest operating bars in New York City, to see if they could make some contact with the spirit world. Um, also, Zoe, would you like
1: to explain why we're here? Yes. So, Bri and I are on a little bit of a ghost hunt. Yeah. We, there are a couple haunted places in New York, and in theme of Halloween, in honor of Halloween... We're venturing out (laughs) into the city. We're going to look for Mickey. We're looking for Mickey. I didn't even know. (laughs) Okay, so Mickey is supposedly the lively ghost haunting the Ear Inn. There are a few theories we read about him before heading to the bar. One was that he was a sailor who drank too much, died at the bar, and his ghost got right back up and kept drinking. Another is that he got run over by a car in 1920 just outside the bar. Drinks have been known to mysteriously disappear. Glasses have flown off the shelves. But we knew the only real way to get to the bottom of this
5: was to ask around. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what I believe in, but I don't know that I've ever felt a ghost. I know that I know that this place is old and like some shit's gone down in here. But like you know that that used to be the water just right over here. This used to be the edge where all the longshoremen came. So I would believe, like, if ghosts exist, some shit went down here and someone's probably like...
1: So, the place was spooky, but our beers were still full and we hadn't found anybody who had experienced Mickey. It was 6.30 on a Wednesday and it was busy. But we managed to track down a server named Beatrice, who knew something about the ghost. I have
2: not, but my coworker told me a story where her brother, who also works here, um, he was actually in the dishwashing station upstairs, but then heard the bartender call for him downstairs. And when he went downstairs, there was no one there.
1: Beatrice's story was promising. There had to be somebody who knew more. We went outside in search of some more ghost hunting patrons, but instead we stumbled upon something very
6: unspooky. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's Peter's birthday, so oh, you. Peter? all... this is Peter. Oh my God! Look at his sweater.
1: And it's his
5: birthday. He's an extraordinary uh, toy poodle. He has an Instagram following that's becoming quite renowned. Yes. You haven't heard about him? No. Uh, several
1: dozen. Yeah. So there's. Several dozen. So not for nothing, we did get to attend our first ever dog birthday party. Just before giving up on finding somebody who had a ghostly run-in, we decided to talk to one last table.
7: So apparently, uh, Barbara here is going to fact-check me. But apparently, the third floor was actually a brothel at one point. Right. And I believe the ghosts of some of the. Uh, a woman was killed here. When? Just, uh, 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 under what circumstances? Nefarious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's rumored that her um, spirit is here. And can I say that she. I work here, so she is a very friendly ghost. And I'm not a ghost believer, but I've seen glasses fly off at certain times from the same spot. And um, I'm here a lot on my own, and I feel something, but I never feel threatened or scared.
1: Mickey was not the mischievous drunk sailor we had come in expecting. But we'd take a friendly ghost over a spooky one any day. And whoever Mickey is their ghostly presence is a part of what makes the ear end special.
7: There are not many establishments left like this in Manhattan. It's a special place. Just the people, because we're off the beaten track, and the people that come here are special, and it gathers a good vibe. And the ghost loves us. Friendly ghost.
1: Here's to hoping the ghost loved us, too.
3: We'll be right back with more Meet and Three after a brief break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com.
3: Welcome back to Meet in Three. For our next story, we're staying in the great beyond. Ghosts like Mickey are happy to hang out all year round, but other spirits only show up once a year. For some people, Halloween evening is spent preparing for some honored guests from the afterlife. At an unassuming storefront in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, the hard work is just beginning. Ovens are fired up, Aprons are tightened and hands are floured as a few bakers get ready for one of their busiest stretches of the year, Dia de los Muertos. Although some small festivities occur in the last few days of October, the main days are November 1st and 2nd. That's when the spirits will visit their families' altars and feast on their favorite foods. Isaac Furman sets out to learn more about a special bread prepared for this holiday.
8: I know like two or three families that they spend like $400 in bread is a lot, for, just for bread. And I can imagine all the, the rest of what they put it in the altar. That's
6: Miguel Lopez, one of the owners of Don Paco Lopez, a Mexican bakery in South Brooklyn. Miguel has been baking all types of Mexican sweetbread since he was a kid in Acatlan, Puebla. Orejas, mantecadas, conchas, you name it. He learned from his father, and his father learned from Miguel's grandfather. But if you head into Don Paco Lopez around this time of year, you'll probably notice another type of bread hogging the spotlight,
8: pan de muerto. When we're talking about pan de muerto, where we're coming from, Acatlán Puebla, we have three kinds of a pan de muerto. One that is the more, most popular in the city and in the villages, they are sweet bread, brown uh, bread with, uh, with some, um, like, we, like, we call it like, bones on the top.
6: If you're not familiar with pan de muerto, imagine this. A mound of sweet, eggy dough is topped with two perpendicular bones, basically long, spindly strands of dough that kind of look like skeleton fingers. The whole thing is then baked and rolled in sugar. The flavor tends to depend on what part of Mexico the recipe hails from.
8: In Mexico City, uh, the pan de muertos, they they use orange flavor. In Puebla, where I'm coming from, it's more cinnamon, and eggs.
6: Miguel tells me that a traditional Dia de los Muertos altar is not complete without the bread and an additional edible offering to
8: deceased family members. If you like enchiladas, they have to put enchiladas in, a plate of enchiladas. If you uh, you like tequila, they put a tequila bottle there. Everything that you used to like, they put it in the altar.
6: Personally, it's comforting to know that I'll still be able to enjoy the occasional pastrami on rye in the afterlife. But with all this talk of dead relatives and bone-shaped breads, you might be fooled into thinking Dia de los Muertos is a somber holiday.
8: Dia de Muertos is a day to celebrate. It's a joy. Because at the end, you know, everybody going to the same path.
6: Miguel hopes his bakery will help younger generations of Mexican-Americans carry on the rituals of the past. Because even though this is a day for the dead, we need to keep the traditions alive.
3: Based on our last two stories, it doesn't seem like a visit from the afterlife is all that frightening. Sometimes, the scariest thing is whatever is just beyond our perception. This happens all the time in horror movies. Be it the glimpse of the ghoul in the mirror, the mysterious sound coming from the basement, or the staticky voice on the phone telling us to get out. And when it comes to food, what we don't know can also haunt us. Sarah Mathis is about to take us on a journey beyond the basement door to discover whether the thing on the other side is so scary after all.
7: It's alive! It's alive. It's alive! It's, alive. it's alive.
2: You may recognize that soundbite from the trailer of the iconic 1931 film Frankenstein, based on Mary Shelley's famous novel. In the early 90s, those wary of GMOs coined the term Frankenfood to describe genetically modified foods that opponents viewed as having been unnaturally spliced together, much like Frankenstein's monster. Now, the next frontier in genetic modification is here, in the form of a tool called CRISPR Cas9. And I have to know should I be spooked? I caught up with Zach Lipman, a professor of biology and genetics at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island to find out.
5: This technology is basically a way to target particular breaks in DNA using a molecular scissors, an enzyme essentially that will recognize a particular DNA sequence, cut it, and then the machinery of the cell will repair that. And what happens during the repair is that it will often make a mistake. And typically those mistakes are not problematic for the cell or the tissue or the organism. But in genetics, it's actually quite useful to make these mistakes because it creates what are called mutations or variations in the DNA, and and that is useful for us to understand what particular genes or DNA sequences do.
2: Older forms of genetic engineering inserted foreign DNA randomly into the genetic sequence of the organism. CRISPR allows scientists to be much more precise. In collaboration with scientists at the Boyce-Thompson Institute at Cornell University, Dr. Lippman successfully used CRISPR to edit the ground cherry, an orphan crop related to the tomato. Orphan crops are fruits and veggies that have not yet entered the mainstream international market. Unlike the produce in the grocery store, they have not been extensively bred to make them big, sweet, and easy to grow. Genetic editing could make them easy to grow and eat around the world much more quickly than selective breeding, and that has significant implications.
5: You might say, well, why do I need to increase the number of orphan crops that could be bred with? This is the point. We want to have greater biodiversity and greater number of crops that are at our disposal to be able to grow in different locations where climate change might be forcing us to grow different types of crops.
2: The race against climate change is a major consideration in Dr. Litman's work. And while he's not saying CRISPR can solve all our problems now, he's hopeful about the future applications of CRISPR and tools like it.
5: For example, we use genome editing to take very large garden varieties of tomatoes that certainly produce to a certain degree, but they're difficult to wield and grow. And we've used genome editing to target three genes to make them appropriate for urban agriculture. And if you're looking... Like this from the outside or you're hearing what i'm saying you might think indeed it could be something that advances that it, it could become dangerous or very risky to use but i prefer to embrace humanity's you know better intuitions and say well here's a technology that as it advances indeed maybe it can be both proactive and reactive at the same time and i think this is where we have to keep looking to the future and embrace the technology because as climate changes happening before our eyes, we want to have all tools in our toolkit to be able to address the acute problems that climate change is going to bring upon us.
2: After my CRISPR deep dive, I must admit, CRISPR-edited food is looking less like Frankenstein's creepy creation and more like a plant with a tasteful facelift. All humor aside, one thing is true, CRISPR is a powerful tool. Certainly, it's a tool that could be used to perpetuate the same unsustainable practices that older genetic modification technologies have been used for, like creating crop resistance to herbicides and pesticides that can contaminate water and degrade soil. But it's important that we appreciate that it could also be used to increase biodiversity, make our food more nutritious, and ensure global food security when climate change forces us to abandon old staples. Because after all, what could be more horrifying than global climate change?
3: That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this Halloween week to Michael Edwin, Isaac Furman, Sarah Mathis, Zoe Denkla, Brianna Brady, and the whole Candy Corn Crew. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. meetin 3 is powered by Simplecast. meetin and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, Write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.